So we've come to the second main section of Romans, which is 5 through 8. And, you know, this is true with all of Romans. You can't really separate it out. You know, there's a lot of things that, you know, Paul mentions, and then he'll go on, and then he'll come back to it uh, after a few sentences or paragraphs or even chapters. And uh, that's certainly true about Romans 5 through 8. There are a lot of key words that he kind of talks around. And um, so what I'm going to do for the next probably three weeks, I'm just going to say we're going to be in Romans 5 through 8 for about three weeks. Rather than saying, all right, tonight's chapter 5 or 5 and 6 or whatever. I am going to talk through chapter 5 tonight. But there's, there are going to need to be some things. There's, there's a lot of unities in this section so going straight through, I don't think is the best way to do it. I want to sort of build uh, some themes just like Paul does, see the themes that he's building and uh, try and receive this section as a whole, Romans 5 through 8. I think it's one of the great sections of the New Testament. Um, so to kind of start us off, I just want to read a verse from close to the end of that portion because I believe it sets the tone for the whole thing. So um, chapter 8, verse 29, says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Lord, I I pray for your presence on our time in the word. Uh, Lord, we don't want to be uh, merely readers of your word. We don't want to be merely hearers of your word. We want to be uh, understanders, but ultimately want to be doers of your word. So I pray that uh, the Holy Spirit that inspired this word would also inspire our hearts to hear it to truly hear it and to submit to it and to let it shape us, Lord. We thank you for your presence among us and and ask that you would now uh, quicken our minds and our hearts uh, to really hear what you have to say to us tonight uh, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I should get out my notes. That would be a good thing. We're transitioning into the second, uh, the second big section of Romans. If you remember, we outlined it, uh, chapters 1 through 4, chapters 5 through 8, 9 through 11, and then 12 through 16. And so we finished up, or I, we, didn't, we didn't anywhere close to finish up uh, chapter 4 uh, last week, but we finished talking about it. Um, and so I just want to recap chapters 1 through 4, so we can understand where Paul is taking us now in chapters 5 through 8. First of all, Romans is about what? What What's primarily, what is is Romans about? Yeah. Well, it starts with the problem in the Gentiles. Yes. They completely didn't know God and rebelled and Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. So what would you say is the main theme? Because I, I, I would let you keep talking, but I won't have anything else to say in my recap if I let you keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's one word. It starts with a G. There's too many great G words. <laughs> um, it, the word in my head was grace. I mean, was, uh, sorry, was gospel. But you can't really separate that from God, right? It's the, what is the gospel? It's that God has done this thing. And what is the thing that God has done? Well, that is grace. So it, all of the Gs. Um, but it's the gospel, Paul says, I need, to, I need to deliver to you the gospel. And so, in chapters 1 and 2, he says, the good news is that Jesus Christ has come. That, that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, let me tell you what that means. Why that's good news. And so, that's when he begins with the problem. This is the problem that Jesus is the answer to. This is why it's good news that he has come. Because the world is in this state. All right? So chapters 1 and 2, as, uh, as Tony said, the problem is that, the, is that mankind has rebelled, right? Chapter 1 is really about the general rebellion of mankind from God, and then the disastrous consequences of that. Um, completely gone astray from the original created purpose of mankind. And then chapter 2 turns and talks about the inclusion of God's chosen people who were chosen to address the problem. To, uh, to help be a, become a solution, uh, the inclusion of them in those very same problems. And he says that all are under the power of sin. All are under sin. And they're also under the wrath of God. Um, and they find themselves uh, in, in, a, in a very poor state, right? Society is crumbling. He lists that, that he rattles off all those adjectives of mankind independent of God. So chapter 3 and 4 um, begins to uncover how God has now worked through his promises, how his faithfulness to his original promises, particularly to Abraham, how that has actually been fulfilled in Jesus. And what that means now is that mankind who were in the wrong that because of God's faithfulness, mankind can be justified. And we didn't talk too much about that word last week, uh, partially because I was scared to. Um, it's a big word. It's like there's so many theological nuances to that. And it's been the, like the whole book of Romans. It's been a, a breeding ground for debates and dissensions. So I, I kind of steered clear of all of that. And I'm, I'm still going to steer clear of it. But I, I want to point out one important thing. And that is that we don't have a single English word to translate what is just in a single Greek root. Uh, and it's behind the words righteousness, right, justice, justify, justification. All right. And anywhere you see righteousness, justification, justify, or justice, it's the same root. It's from the same word uh, in Greek. 
And so it's a, it's a rich word. And so that's why there's so much debate about, well, what is justification and what, is, what, what exactly is righteousness and whose righteousness is it? Is it our righteousness? Is it, righteous, is it God's righteousness? Is it righteousness from God? What does justify mean? Um, and you can go, I think the best place that for me to, to understand it really does come from the Old Testament. Uh, and particularly in the prophets that Paul points to, hey, this is a gospel that was told before time in the prophets. It was, it was declared in types and shadows, but now it's been revealed, it's been uncovered. But the prophets talk about the righteousness of God, and it's equal to his, his, his delivering his saving acts on behalf of his people. Right? God's righteousness is when, is happened when he comes and he judges not the bad people, but he judges everything that is against, everything that has come against his purposes. Right? When he moves in the earth, he righteously judges. Right? So the, the whole idea of judgment is also related to the word righteousness. So God's moving in the earth to judge is the same thing as, it, as, as him justifying a sinner, okay? It's all connected. So when, when God justifies us, what he's doing is he's making us right. He's setting us right. It's like setting a broken bone. It's, it's out of place, and he justifies it, right? It's now in place. It is, it is as it should be. But that's not just true for individuals in their relationship with God. Right? The judgment of God affects all of creation. Right? When God comes to judge the earth, he's setting everything right. Everything that has gone wrong from thorns and thistles, which you read about in chapter 8. Um, everything that has gone wrong, right? as, as Joy to the World says, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Wherever something is off, wherever something is awry, God comes to set it right. And so obviously individuals are included in that work of God setting things right and come to find out they are really the first step in God's larger project of judging the world. Okay, so righteousness, justice, judgment, justification is all the same idea of God setting things right. God making it right. And also inherent in that is God getting rid of what's bad. All right? So there's a wrath component too of judgment. Right? No, this is bad. It has to go. This is good. It needs to stay. Right? That's all included in justification. So we're still in our, our recap. Chapters 3 and 4. The answer to those problems is God's righteousness in sending forth Jesus. Right? God's been faithful to the promise. He promised to set the world right. He promised it all the way back, actually, in, in Genesis 3. He clarified the promise by selecting Abraham, a family through whom he was going to fill the world, bless all nations. And he has been faithful to that promise um, in sending uh, forth Jesus, who justifies us if we will trust him, if we will believe in him. Okay, that's the gospel. Those who put their trust in Jesus the Messiah 
who really put their trust in God's righteousness, God's faithfulness, God's trustworthiness. Those who believe that he's able to perform, as we saw at the end of chapter 4, those who believe that he's able to perform what he said he's going to do, just like Abraham did. That's what it means. That's all God's ever been looking for, right? Is someone to walk with him in faith. And so he's made that possible again. We can be set right by trusting in him because that's always what it's meant to be in right relationship with God. Does that make sense? Abraham's the example of it. So I don't see very much where Paul is, and this is venturing out a little bit into some of those theological debates that are out there, but I think this just helps it make more sense. I don't see Paul much talking just generally against people wanting to do good things. What he's saying, he says, you can't be justified by works of the law. What he's saying is that, listen, this begins and ends with my righteous acts. Right? You can't be saved by something outside of me moving in history, me sending forth my son to be the meeting place and to be, and his, ju- his uh, he says right here, um, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. When Jesus was raised, the resurrection is the moment at which mankind was set right. Okay? And so now that's, how, that's where we are. Let me just read something I wrote. This is, I guess this is important. God's righteousness is such that it makes us righteous. Okay, so it does make us righteous. But the primary thing isn't, hey, how can human beings, uh, how can human beings do things that are righteous? How can God make us do things that are righteous when actually doing the law seems to be you know, frowned upon in Paul sometimes? It's not that we're not justified by the law. So how can we be, what can we do in order to become righteous? Well, God has made us righteous in Jesus. That's what he says. And so if we trust him, and chapter 5 goes on to talk about the implications of that. If we trust him, then we are set right. We are included in that justification. Trust itself is the human posture toward God that aligns us with our created purpose. Okay? That's why we're justified by faith. Because trust itself, faith itself is the human posture toward God that aligns us with our created purpose. And also, it's important to to know that faith is not just, it's not passive. You know, it's not just, all right, I believe. It's not, or I should should say, it's not simply uh, mental, right? Faith faith is is ultimately a, a way of living, right? I trust that there's gravity and I, all of my movements are in light of my trust in this thing called gravity. I, I know how it works. I don't always acknowledge my whole existence, right? I judge how far I need or how much force I need to use to lift this leg up because I, I trust that gravity is going to pull it to a certain extent, right? And so every step is in light of my trust in gravity. If I didn't trust in gravity, I I would never get my feet off the ground. I would just expect it to just come up. 
So you see how walking in faith affects everything. It's not just, I believe in God. I believe he loves me. Now everything I do is righteous. Well, insofar as you do those things in faith, (laughs) in light of who God is and in light of his purposes. And so that's what chapter 5 is going to begin to talk about. Okay, so we're going to transition from, here's the problem that the gospel is the solution from, and here's how the gospel really addresses this problem. It, it, It justifies mankind, both Jew and Greek. It justifies mankind back to their original purpose. And it's only possible, not, not through the law, uh, not through human effort. Says by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his presence. But it's possible by the righteousness of God in, in sending forth his son. That is the act that justifies us. And so, chapters 5 through 8 are less about the problem and then the solution to the problem. And they're much more about, okay, so what? What of those, what about those who find themselves justified? What now? And Paul begins to flesh out that here's what's actually happened. Here's here's what's actually happened. You have now become, once you're justified, you have now become more human than Adam. You are more truly human than even Adam. That's really what he's saying. And so now those who are justified, those who have placed their faith in Jesus, who find themselves in this state of justification by their trust, he says, you need to realize who you are. You've got to realize, you're a whole new type of of creature, human being. Okay? Okay? And so chapters 5 through 8 are talking about from justification to glorification. Glorification, right? Now we're back on the track. We're back from the ditch, (laughs) back onto the road. That's justification. Now from the road all the way to the, where was it at the end of the Oregon Trail? The Willamette Valley. Now we're talking about all, going, that road all the way to those green pastures, right? Okay, so you see what's happened. Something's gone drastically wrong. God has been faithful to his promise to address that problem, and he has brought both the original sinners and those that were supposed to be the answer to the problem. He's brought, he's brought them both, and in Jesus, he has set humanity back on track. He's brought him out of the ditch. Praise the Lord. So what about this road that's in front of us now? We've been restored to our original purpose. So what does that mean? What does that mean for the rest of our lives? This is the answer. This is the questions that five through eight really answer. So justification means that we're a new kind of human. We're no longer a descendant of Adam. We are now a brother of Christ. In chapter 8, it says he's the firstborn among many brothers. We are now a brother of the Messiah. And we are in him. So it's really helpful to, to keep 
chapters 5 through 8 as a whole, to keep it together in your head as a whole, uh, particularly because chapter 5 is kind of dense, and it's, it's, it's a little difficult to follow. But when you understand what Paul's doing and where he's going, particularly where he ends up in chapter 8, I encourage you to read chapter 5 and chapter 8 together and compare what those two chapters are saying because they're really saying a lot of the same things. Where is this all headed? Where are we heading? And for that reason, I think it's important, and N.T. Wright really stresses this, and I think it's, I think it's, I think it's very important, um, that these chapters really have as their backdrop the story of the Exodus. Okay? It's not cited here. This is one of those places where we don't look for particular quotes, but we look for the shape of the story as the shape of what Paul is saying. Okay? He talks a lot about deliverance. He talks a lot about slavery, bondage. Okay? These things should, should, especially for someone steeped in the Old Testament story, these things should really call to mind the whole feeling and shape and language of the Exodus story, right? Brought out of bondage, brought through the Red Sea. Paul talks about baptism, right? This is a type of being brought through the sea. He talks about chapter 7, he has this digression about the law. Why would he talk about the law then? Because what happens to those who have been brought out of bondage through the sea in this new and, and more complete, fulfilled way? So, What's the role of the law in this new humanity? Right? Because the law was, they were brought out of Egypt. They were brought through the Red Sea. They were brought into the wilderness and given the law. Here's how you should live. So they were delivered and set on a course and given the law. And their final destination was the promised land. This is the shape of Romans 5 through 8. You've been delivered. You've been set You've been given a new law, but it's different than the old law. And he comes back to that in chapter 14 as well. It has to do with love. You've been given a new and more superior law some, to, to do things that the old law couldn't ever cause you to do or ever enable you to do. And where are we headed? Toward glory, toward eternal life. Not only that, but we are headed toward a new creation. Right? And chapter 8 gives us that glorious passage about our presence in the world as the sons of God bringing life to creation itself. How creation itself is eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, so you see what, what's going on here. He says, all right, you've been justified. You've been brought out. And he, he talks about what's happened in chapters 5 and 6. Here's what's actually gone on with you. You're, you're here, and, and now you're the new people of God. You're the new humanity. Okay, praise God. But let's, let's praise him for what, the work that he's done. But let's look forward to why he has done that work. And what humanity was originally intended to be in the earth in the first place. And that's where we end up in chapter 8. So you see how the shape works. Keep, keep the Exodus story in your, in your head. All right? And it'll make more sense. Um, and it also makes sense because there are, there are lots of parts in Isaiah where, right, Isaiah was talking, we just came out of this, but Isaiah is talking to the people of God 
who are headed into exile. But God's trying to, to, to uh, ensure them that that doesn't mean that he's abandoning them. No, in fact, he's being faithful to his covenant in sending them into exile. And the end result of that is actually going to be an even greater Israel. Because he's going to come and he's going to deliver them from bondage and he's going to be faithful and he's going to bring them back. And there's going to be a new exodus, a return from bondage, a deliverance. And that's what the prophets were testifying to, that when God decides to come and make everything right, he's going to come and it's going to look like a new and more glorious exodus. So again, Paul is speaking to people who we're wondering when, when and how is God going to do this? And he's saying he has, and it's in Jesus. And let me explain what that looks like. All right. So when you have those things in your mind, some of the statements that Paul makes make a lot more sense. Because you're finally up to, the, up to speed with the people that he was going to be talking to. Right? And the kinds of stories they carried in their heart and their understanding of themselves as the people of God. That's all the notes I have. Wow. So in chapter 5, let's, we'll walk through some of this. Therefore, okay, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We, it's, it's right. And peace is a very relational word. It's not just you know, tranquility. It's things are right between us. We have peace with God. There's no longer enmity, right? And, and that was part of the curse. We'll put enmity between my offspring and your offspring is now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also attained access by faith. So we've been justified. But guess what that means? We've obtained access into grace. And I want, to su- I want to suggest that the word grace and the Genesis idea of blessing are very close. Okay? When you understand blessing in the book of Genesis, I think you'll understand more fully what God's grace is. We often think of grace as, well, but for the grace of God, you know, I'm terrible, but somehow he still loves me, which is true. But the grace of God, and you'll see this all through chapter 5, the grace of God is this force in our lives and through our lives into the world, this force of blessing. And what blessing does is it, 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 it's abundant, and it overcomes, and it, it brings forth teeming life. Right When God blessed creation, um, it meant that it was, it was teeming with life. It was, it was full and rich. Okay, so the grace of God, and by extension, when we have grace for one another, it means that, and we have access into this grace, so we now live as, with, with the grace of God as our, um, our sustenance, as our... Um, I don't exactly know how to, how to describe it, right? We have this now force that is constantly streaming into our lives to bring forth fruit and teeming life. 
and fruitfulness. Does that make sense? So grace, think the lush garden of Eden. That's what grace causes. All right? It's favor. This grace in which we stand. All right, so we don't just stand justified. All right, we've escaped wrath. No, we've escaped wrath into grace. That's an amazing thing. All right, we're not just skating by on the brink of maybe going to hell, but for the grace of God. No, if you live in the grace of God, you team with abundant life and you cause those around you to team with abundant life. All right, that's what grace is. So we've obtained access into grace, full blessing right now. And we rejoice in the hope. This is the future. This is where we're headed. The glory of God. Remember, all have sinned and, and come short the glory of God. That's the situation that we're in. But now, having been justified, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We're going to be Reflecting the glory of God like we were always intended. Amen. Yes. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. I mean, what? Wait, hold on. I thought we were talking about blessing, teeming life, abundant life. And he says, yes. But the world's not all as it should be yet. God's working that plan. He's moving toward that. But guess what? Now we have suffering. We are in a world where there is suffering. But when you live under grace, it transforms suffering. You see what I'm saying? Suffering is now something that you can rejoice in. What? You can't other than under grace. You can't do it just skating by. Right? Suffering's going to knock you off course. But if you live in grace, even suffering is transformed. You know, you think of Psalms like, they will walk through the valley of Baca and it will become a place of springs. They will walk through the desert. And it says this in Isaiah too. The desert will become a place of teeming life when the righteous walk through. Why? Because they, they have access and they stand under grace. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, that when you're, when you're in under grace and we've been justified, and when you have hope of the glory of God, you know that the rest of your life, nothing can happen, and this anticipates chapter 8. He works all things together. Nothing can happen that doesn't advance us toward the glory of God. If it's suffering, <laughs> Well, guess what the most glorious thing that ever happened for, as, as a human was? A guy got up on a cross and died. So that's settled. Right? That brought forth glory. That accomplished something. That left a mark on the world. <laughs> How much more our sufferings can be transformed? We know who we are. And we live under the, under the grace of God. Hope does not put us to shame. And this would be the other... Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is where I think it's 
you know, Paul's brilliant in his conversation about how justification happens and the righteousness of God and, and sort of that, that law court imagery. But now we've, we've taken the metaphor and we, we've gotten rid of the metaphor and now we're into the reality of who God is. What's behind all of this? Why is God righteous? Why has he sent forth his son? Out of his love. And this, again, anticipates where chapter 8 ends up. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. This is all about the love of God. The love of God caused him to take initiative. The love of God caused him to make a promise to Abraham. The love of God caused him to be faithful to that promise. What's behind God's righteousness? It's his love. Isn't this good? Paul knows what he's talking about. I love it. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So in, this, in these first five verses, major themes have been introduced. Just bing, 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 bing. <laughs> and they're going to get unpacked through, through chapters five through eight. Okay, So the first one is grace. Um, second one's glory. Third one would be suffering. Hope, the love of God, which, by the way, this is the first time in this letter that God's love has been mentioned. Isn't that interesting? God's love, and then, finally, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's a key factor in all of this. How can this happen in our lives? By the Spirit. How can we be in Jesus? How can we be in the Messiah? By the Holy Spirit. How can the Messiah be in us? By the Holy Spirit. Okay, all of this happens by the Holy Spirit, which again, chapter 8, really culminates all of this for us. So he's front-loading all these things that he's going to begin to expound on. All right. So if you get confused, if this seems kind of dense, and you're like, well, I wish he would say more about that, go read chapter 8. All right? And he unpacks all of this. And then we just have one of the best, I think, definitions or, or images of God's love. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He knew right when to do it. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, right? And this gets back to the whole thing you know, we get in chapters 9 and 11 where, where God says, it wasn't because of who you are that he chose you. He chose you because... He knew what he himself was capable of. And so he said, I'm going to choose you and I'm going to be faithful to you. So he didn't die for righteous people. <laughs> right? That's who he, one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what He's going to unpack the implications of that. Since, therefore, we have been now been justified by his blood, this was necessary in order to get us back on track. Much more, and I want you to, every time it says much more, just go and underline it, because that's really the theme of chapter 5. Much more. Much more. Okay? Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, we've been justified. God's done it. God has righted the course. And he's done it because Jesus has been faithful. And all those who put their trust in him are now part of the people of God. And so he talks about this transfer from Adam to Christ. Okay, now this is used all the time as, um, you know, for debates on original sin. But this is one of those places in the Bible where I think we bring questions to it that Paul never intended really to answer in a technical way. All right. What's, what's he saying here? He's saying, all right, this whole problem started with one man choosing to live independently from God and rebelling. And that set off a chain of events. Now, all the debates come about why those chain of events happened, right? Is sin some sort of infection that's passed on genetically from Adam to us? Um, Did we just all kind of learn and imitate Adam? You know, what's, what's the deal here? And I don't know, and I don't know if we'll ever fully know. Um, nature teaches us that our children are a lot like us. But what's the big debate on why your children are like you? Is it nature or nurture? <laughs> and that's really the debate over how did Adam's sin spread to us? Nature or nurture? Well, I don't, I don't know, but it happened, right? I don't know if we need to know exactly, technically how it happened. It happened, right? That's what, that's what Paul says. Sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin. So sin happened and therefore death spread. That was the consequence. God said, if you do this, you will surely die. And die they did. After about 900 years, but still they died. (laughs) So death spread to all men because all sinned. Why did they sin? I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. So, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Okay, so Adam was a type of the one to come. So God all along knew that there was going to be one that came that was going to be like Adam in in the sense that he was going to be the father of a whole, uh, he was going to embody and be the fountainhead of humanity. All right? Um, For the sake of clarity, it's sometimes good to put a parenthesis right before uh, verse 13, or at verse 13, and then close it at the end of verse 17, because that's like a parenthetical thought. So Paul kind of skips from, from verse 12, because all sinned, and then he, he picks that thought, he pauses for like an aside on the comparisons between Adam's sin and Christ's act of righteousness, and he kind of compares those two, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. 
But verse 18, he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So that's the point. Hey, just like Adam, this happened in Adam and it affected the whole human race. That's his point. This has happened in Jesus and it affects the whole human, whole human race. It affects everything. It resets the course of humanity. Does that make sense? Jesus reset the course of humanity. In the same way that Adam reset the course of humanity towards death, Jesus has reset the course of humanity towards life. Now, verse 15, this can get a little, this is where the the rhetoric gets a little confusing, but let me explain it a little bit. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. The point here is much more. Much more. He says the free gift, the point isn't the comparison between the free gift and the act of righteousness. The point is, he's saying, whatever bad came of Adam's choice, much more good comes from Jesus. He's like, you can't compare the two. In other words, what Jesus has done hasn't simply canceled out Adam's wrong. It's canceled it out and gone beyond it. Much more. Does that make sense? The free gift is not like the trespass. Many died through one man's trespass. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus, abounded for many. Okay, so that abundance and the, the abundance of grace. He says, this doesn't, just, this doesn't just erase Adam's sin. This goes beyond it and, and cancels out all of the effects of it and triumphs over it and, and abounds over it. If by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace Right? And that's a key phrase, the abundance of grace. Grace is about abundance, overflowing. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're talking about justification from a path that led to death, sin and death. But now we're talking about living in grace and walking in true life. Now, the law came in, and he's going to flesh this out again. He keeps touching on the law because, again, he's speaking to Jews who were devout. And he's anticipating their questions. But what about Torah? You know, we, we, we treasure this highly. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. <laughs> where the law came and said, you guys think, you guys know that you're off. Well, let me show you how off you really are. And it magnified sin. It said, look how far away you are from the holiness of God. I said, whoa, we're we're way far away. But when God did that, he said, look how far off you are. And look how abundant grace is. I can get you all the way back and more. Right? So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. So this, this is a kingdom language. Okay? This is about a transfer from one kingdom to another kingdom. Leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And so he says, he, he, he continues to answer the question that he posed, or that he started to answer in, in chapter 5. Right Now that we've been justified, then what? So we've been brought out of sin, then what? Do we just kind of keep going because God seems to have everything under control? No, you don't keep sinning. This changes everything. And that's what chapter 6 is about. So what, do we just kind of keep on keeping on? No. By no means. You've got to recognize what has really happened. This has changed. Fundamentally, this has changed your DNA. So you don't do those same things. You're not in Adam anymore. You are now in Christ. And you live as a completely different kind of human. So let's, let's talk about that now. All right, and so we're getting, uh, we don't have time uh, to go into that uh, tonight. So we'll, we'll pick up there. Because then he begins to talk about, to kind of hone in on the, that transfer of, of king, from one kingdom to another. Right? He talks about being crucified and raised to walk in the newness of life. All right, so he's going to begin to talk about that process by which we've been So chapter 5 has been, hey, you've been brought from here to here. And then chapter 6 begins to to zero in on, now let me talk about that process of being brought from here to here. What happened? What went on? And so he begins to talk about baptism and being buried and raised. And all of this is in identification with Christ. In Christ. All right? And so you go, how? So that's a mysterious thing. Um, Yes, it is. How are we in Christ? Well, by the Holy Spirit. And that's what chapter 8 really uh, hammers home for us. So do you see where we're headed here? We, Paul's concern was, hey, Jew, Gentile, everybody's in the same boat. All right, You're all off on the side of the road in a ditch. God's brought you back. Now, let me clarify what humanity is all about and what the glory of walking with the creator God as humans. Let me show you what it's like. And what the road looks like from here on forward. All right? And that's what chapters 5 through 8 really are. Does that make sense? You following the, the train of thought? Now, that's general. There's, there's obviously lines here and there that it's like, I don't know exactly what he's saying. But I think if you can keep that framework, you're on pretty solid ground. Right? Paul is not addressing so much the Jew-Gentile thing. He'll get back to that in chapter 9 in a big way. But now he's just talking about, all right, us as the new humanity on a level playing field. Now what? What's life all about? And that's why I think this, this portion has been beloved by so many because it really gets to the heart of who we are, our, our identity. As the people in the Messiah now by faith have been justified. Whoa. It's glorious. And we live under grace. Um, so again, go back and get in your heart where he ends up in chapter 8, right? And I think a lot of the, the direction of his argument makes a lot more sense when you understand that climax in chapter 8, you know, all, in all of the ways. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, all the grace. We're in Christ. There's no condemnation. We're filled with the Spirit. And um, creation itself is, is being redeemed as we live out this life in relation to God. Uh, sonship too adoption as sons the spirit who cries Abba Father so many great and glorious things about who we are in Romans 8 but you see where he's where he comes from
All right. Um, yeah. So we'll just we'll just stop there, and we'll we'll pick up we'll pick up in chapter six next week. Um. Because there's a lot, there's a lot in chapter six. There's a lot in all of these chapters. So maybe it'll take four weeks for us to get through five through eight. Um, yeah, but here we are. We are the redeemed people of God. We are not in Adam anymore. We're not of his race. We are brethren with the firstborn of many brethren, Christ Jesus. And we are no longer slaves to sin, as chapter six says. We are slaves of righteousness. And that leads to a very different kind of life. And it really leads, as we sang, from one degree of glory to the next. But there's also, and again, this is in chapter 8 as well, there's also suffering. And that's just the reality of life uh, in a fallen world. There is suffering. But actually, that's very redemptive. And in fact, that gets us closer to identifying with Jesus um, than just walking... uh, and walking in that glory that we're headed to. All right. Um, any questions or comments? I know this is kind of like drinking from a fire hose, but that's like that's what reading Romans is to me anyway. <laughs> Constant, mind blowing stuff. When you spoke on grace, like Yeah. Yeah. The first move is always God's. It's never us trying to get to God. He He's been trying to get to us. Yeah. While we were still sinners, before we could ever reach out to Him, He sent forth His Son. So I'd say, you know, I'd say Romans 5 through 8 are, are the most discrete unit, you know, that a lot of people see like chapters 9 through 11 as like a digression. But I, I see that as like continuing the argument that he left off in chapter 4 when he was talking about Abraham and of what value is the Jew. And so what of the Jewish people according to the flesh? It's 5 through 8 are really that the digression are um, like, all right, what's true for all people? What is the shape of this Justification, salvation, glorification. What is it? What are we all doing here? And it's just a great description of the process for being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and what that means for our lives, our day-to-day lives moving forward. All right, stick with it. Um, Really drink deep of chapters 5 through 8 this week, and we'll get back into chapter 6 next week. Amen.